I was thinking to myself walking up this podium, and I don't know how I've been privileged to share here periodically with such great people, great pastoral staff. But now the steps are a little more treacherous. I believe the end of Ecclesiastes, it says, as you get older and your hair changes colors or goes away, (laughs) it says that even a walk in the park becomes a bit treacherous and you lose your grip. How many ever discovered that you're above 60? It's like Larissa used to ask me, will you open this jar? And it's like, she doesn't ask that anymore. Both of us are like major crippled people in the house trying to get a jar of pickles open. And we've resorted to the Rubbermaid things that twist it off. It's not always fun to get older. You just have to deal with it. Pastor Des asked me not far back, he said, I'd sat down and got the chance to visit with him a minute, and he said, how's your stamina? And I said, well, I'm not quite where you're at, but I'm getting there. <laughs> it's, uh, it is a part of what you deal with. Um, seems nowadays that the, the steps you take seemed further away or something. You know, you step, and you're just not sure if it's really there. It's elusive to you. The thing I didn't like in Ecclesiastes, I believe it's a 12th chapter, where he said, and in, in, he's describing as you get older and the windows get dim. He mentioned, and you should read it in the Message Bible, message Bible if you get a chance. He talks about in your matchstick-like body. I'm thinking, did he have to put that in there like <laughs> you get old and you're brittle and you're... Apparently, he did. I've had the privilege for at least 40 of those two years, maybe more, to have sat under some of the most wonderful pastoral people on this earth. They are shepherds after God's own heart. When I should have been out traveling and hitting the road and raising money... I just hated to leave, honestly. And I said, Lord, would you just fix it to where I won't have to do that all the time? Of course, now you see I'm home more than I'm anywhere else. That's because the wealth that's in this place. There's other, sometimes I see other people, other directors who have failed in life, and I thought you traveled too much. You should have been sat down and taught like I was. It's not bragging. It's just saying sometimes we get things out of order. I believe God's dropped a word in my heart, and I hope I have the ability to share it. But first, I want you to stand with me, if you will. I'm going to wake you up before I put you to sleep. I would just like us to 
if you'll join me in this time, and I'm sure I'll get in trouble for this, but send me an email. You can get my email address later. It's Adley. I don't have one. <laughs> I probably have said this before, and I'm trying not to tell too many stories, but when I was brought onto the church board for a season a number of years ago, first thing, first thing Priscilla asked me is, what is your email address? And I said, I don't have one. I was 61 years old. She said to me, you don't have one. And I said, no. She said, we'll fix that right now. <laughs> so my email address starts with Adley61. That's how I know what it is. But I want you to join me, and I feel like I need to do this. And I want to bless this pastoral staff in this place this morning. I know Dan and Becky are not here. I don't know why they always leave town when I share, but it's <laughs> starting to worry me a little bit. But I want you to help me bless this staff. We're, we don't appreciate our people so often as we should. And when you're old and you're unable to stand and you can't do it, you always wished you had. So this morning, I'd like for this place just to erupt with a with a clap offering or a praise or whatever to this entire staff from Dan and Becky and, and all of this staff, former and present, that have taught us from early on and prayed for our children and brought us to this place. I think they need to be appreciated this morning. So will you help me? Now, I know you're hoping I'll say be seated, but before you do, I want you to venture out of your comfort zone, maybe just turn around in your seat. I want you to face somebody and look at them. I often say this, if it's your wife and you're in trouble for something, <laughs> you better fix it because you're fixing to have to deal with it. And I want you to repeat after me. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget none of His benefits. He's forgiven all of my iniquities. He is and will heal all of my diseases. He's redeemed my life from destruction. And He's crowning it with loving kindness and tender mercies. He's made me a tree of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. Blessed be His name. Amen. You may be seated.
I know I have limited time. I went into Sam's not far back, well, a little ways back. Actually, time runs together anymore, maybe a year. <laughs> Talking about deal with the stuff with your wife. And anyway, I went in, and, and the reason I went into Sam's for whatever reason, and Sam's is a real problem for me. I don't know if any of you all have that, but it's, in, it's impossible to get out without spending more than you intended to. I hate that. But we entered in, and there was this young lady. She was standing there, and she was trying to introduce Sam's to new people. And, and uh, we're like card-carrying members, you know, since the dirt. And she said, is there anything I can help you with? And I said, maybe. Or I said, no. And then I passed her up, and I turned around, and I said, maybe there is something. She said, what is it? I said, you see that woman behind me, the short one? She said, I do. And I knew she had a, somewhat of a sense of humor. And I said, she has told me what to do for 40-something years. Now, my wife always tells me, and I will until you're dead. I'm just thinking of the consequences. I just, I just, it's coming my way. She said, yes, I see her. I said, she's told me what to do for 40-something years. And I'm tired of it. This lady was quick. She turned and looked at me, and she said, hmm. She said, uh, you signed up for it, didn't you? I said, maybe. She said, and you like it too, don't you? I said, I guess I do. She, I've never seen her since. She never, better when she sees me, she goes to another department, but... I feel like the Lord has dropped this word in my heart. My problem is not content. My problem is articulation and putting it together to share what He's dropped in my heart. I believe Bethesda has been, has been singled out in the heart of God for a distinct purpose. But it doesn't mean it will, will come without difficulty or conflict or affliction or trouble. If you've served the Lord very long, you know that conflict and affliction and trouble come. But the Lord is faithful. He delivers us out of them all. He will see us through that area. I'll be in John chapter 11 an eyewitness to Lazarus. I've read this chapter many, many times, but it's never stood out to me like it has. 
And here's what, the God, here's what the Lord dropped into my heart the other day, so I just pinned it down. I wrote this, I believe the hand of God is positioning this body for, for the manifestation of His glory, His glory, and His Spirit alone. A manifestation where it'll have nothing to do with any flesh. It'll neither be able to stand in His presence, but it is all about the ingathering of the people to come home, who are coming home. I believe God is positioning this body. I'm not talking about how large the building gets or if it's mega or no. I'm not talking about looking forward to the church having 10,000 members. I remember a wise man saying once a long ways back, you never measure a church by the crowd, you always measure it by the Christ. But I believe God is positioning this body specifically with this staff, with this younger staff, their flexibility, their heart for transition and for change. He is positioning them for what is about to come. But remember, it won't come without difficulty or problems. When I got into this chapter, it began to stand out to me, really stand out to me much different than I had read it ever before. It was about a whole lot more than just Lazarus. Not far back, I read an article by the president of Harvard University. Harvard University deals with some of the greatest academic minds and one of the most academic institutions in America. He was asked this question, what is the greatest problem you see in your university? He said, emptiness. There's no meaning or passion for life. Everybody's bored. This is the president of Harvard University. No fulfillment. And what I feel in my heart is that's going to drive people back to Jesus. So God's positioning us in a particular way. It doesn't matter our credentials or how brilliant our mind is. Detached from the creator of the universe, we're absolutely empty and unfulfilled in life. But God said this, and then I'll get into my story. In Psalms 107.20, He sent His Word, and He healed them and delivered them from their pit. How many of you have ever been in a pit in your life? I'm not always sure people know what to do with people that come out of a pit. <laughs> you ever been in a dark place or in a grave maybe similar to like Lazarus was and you come out and suddenly you realize you were dead and now you're alive and your dance gets a little more profound and your shout gets a little louder and 
Brent asked me, what would you title this? And I said, I don't have a title, but I would just simply probably talk about when dead things start walking. (laughs) The story seems simple to me. That it was about the raising of a man who was passed away, but it dealt with so much more than that. Bethany had become a, it reminded me a lot of Bethesda in its early days and what it was designed and what it was purposed for. I believe, if I remember right, when the name was changed from Northside Assembly of God to Bethesda Community Church, it was because the word Bethesda spoke of the house of mercy. And through the years, I've watched people, some of prominence, come and sit and be taught and nurtured back to life again. Sometimes inconspicuously, they're placed in the body, and we don't really know altogether who they are, but God is putting them together again, taking them out of their pit. It's sort of like Ezekiel dealt with when he looked out across the boneyard and all these bones were lost, and you've heard that story. When they said to, 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 the, they said to themselves, our bones are dried and our hope is lost, and we are cut off from our parts, empty. And here's what the Lord said, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And when I have opened your graves... O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. You will know that I am the Lord God Almighty. My theology has changed. I don't talk so much about salvation versus abasement or by abasement or other kind of theological things. My theology has changed to simply God is. He is what you need Him to be this morning. He is power and He is resurrection. He is the King of glory. He is the host of heaven. He is the God of the angel armies. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He's Lord God Almighty in the midst of His people to bring them up out of the pit. I remember when my sister and I, and you'll have to forgive me for occasional story. I have a lot to cover, but my mind just does that. For years growing up, my dad in a 56 Ford used to stop by. I lived in a rural community called Meridian. The only way to reference it is to go to the next biggest place, and that's Duncan, Oklahoma. We were lodged in between Duncan and Comanche, nine miles from Duncan and four miles from Comanche. My dad used to love old people. He spoke in a Sunday school class and taught it. He took care of them until they passed away. But I remember this one lady, she was really big, tall. Big bone. I know where some of y'all are going with that, and you can just stop. <laughs> she was like a big lady, and she wore this gray trench coat. 
and her hair was always braided. And my dad, my dad, he stopped beside the road. She'd be standing by 81 Highway, and my dad would stop and pick her up. My brother was already grown out and got his own car, and here my sister and I are stuck in the back of the seat. And we fought over who was going to have to sit by Mrs. C. Because the whole time she never said anything, she just mumbled. And it would be a whimper and a whine. As I've gotten older, I'm, I'm understanding more so that things were, what was going on there. But my sister and I literally would, would battle over who would sit by Mrs. C. Scared to death. We knew God could keep us. We just didn't know which one of us. <laughs> Occasionally she would look over at us. I don't know that it caused childhood trauma, but later on as I grew up, and I was in a theology class, a theology class in Houston, Texas, The professor made this statement. He said, interesting, let's just all introduce ourselves and where we're from. And I thought, oh, here we go. Somebody's going to make fun of Oklahoma. We went around the room. It came to me, and I said, I'm Larry Adley, and I'm from Duncan, Oklahoma. He quit saying anything. He just stopped and looked at me. He said, Duncan? I said, yes, sir. said, that's a long ways from Houston. I said, yes, sir. He said, you know, I had a sister. And she lived outside of Duncan. And some man for years would stop and pick her up and take her to church. What church did you go to? And I told him. The whole time I was getting shorter and shorter, shrinking down in my seat, thinking, oh Lord, where's this going to go? I'm... It just simply went here. I made straight A's in theology. The Lord said, I'll send my word and I'll heal my people. How many of you know His word is a transcending word? It climbs over everything else. It's a translating word. It will take you from the kingdom of darkness and translate you into the marvelous kingdom of His dear Son. It's the only way we can get there. It's a transforming word. Be ye transformed. I used to remember Pastor Dez saying, stuff is supposed to change. I put a new word in. It's a transfinite word. It surpasses the finite. It goes beyond. Sometimes we think our pit is so deep and it's so dark that there's no way out of this place. But there is 
So I want to deal with three particular things out of this story. One is location, and one is logic, and one is lesson. I do not know how that, that, that come out like that. The location of this story is in Bethany. It means house of affliction or house of pain. It wasn't a city or a town so much as it was a village. Probably all I can study up is that it's 16 to 20 families, not a big place. It was the side of an almshouse. I thought of Bethesda Cares when I got to this place. Outside of the town or the village was an alms house that took care of sick people and people that were journeying on to Jerusalem who were not well. It was a village used as a center for caring for the sick and the destitute, pilgrims passing through. Reminded me of Bethesda. There seemed to be through the Gospels a, a uh, connection between Bethany and caring for the unwell in the church. Simon the leper lived in Bethany. And there the Lord had received a word from Bethany that his friend was sick. Lazarus. Look how it starts off this verse. And a man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Funny to define that. That household was familiar to the household of faith because not only did Jesus spend time there, others spent time passing through to Jerusalem there. He received word, but I don't know how they got the word to Jesus. He was a long distance off, and the, and the sisters sent a runner to, to Jesus to say, that man whom you love, the one who you love so much, is sick. Jesus got the word. But the Word says that he stayed where he was at. For a couple of more days. Hmm. The Word doesn't say, and yet, like it was a place of indifference, and yet he stayed for two days more. It says, therefore he stayed with the intent for this thing to play itself out. He stayed until finally he said to his disciples, let's, let's head on to where Lazarus is at, and they rose up and said, we're not going there, Lord. 
You just went there and they tried to kill you and now you're wanting to go back. They tried to stone you. The logic in all of this was not making sense. The Jews are out to kill you and you're going back. And Jesus replied, are there now 12 hours in a day? He was saying, God, how my Father has allotted the adequate time for this whole thing to play out. And I walk in daytime right now. But he said, our friend Lazarus has gone to sleep and I'm going to go wake him up. I'm going to wake him up. Things are not always as they seem. When God begins to do majestic things, that lull period between what he knows and when it actually happens, a lot of stuff could happen in there. All of a sudden, Bethany is not only a hotbed politically, it's a hotbed spiritually. And God is stretching the people in this story. He's stretching what they believed. Sometimes what we believe doctrinally gets in the way of what we need to see currently. And everybody started, everybody, poor Jesus, I mean, he, he had to know where he was going because it was an encouraging atmosphere. They're out to kill you. We can't go back there. But I'm going to raise Lazarus. He's asleep. And I want to get him up. And Jesus said, if he's gone to sleep, or they, the disciples said, Master, if he's gone to sleep, he'll get a good rest and he'll wake up feeling fine. They're not getting it. God is positioning this body to be ready for what is going to happen, but He's going to deal with what is until that happens. He will challenge. He was challenging Mary. He was challenging Martha. He was challenging the disciples. He was stretching their theology. That's why I said mine's more simple now. God is. God is. God is. It's a timing issue. It's God's times versus our time. They were saying if he's asleep, he'll wake up. No logic to it. When the sisters had sent word, they wasn't conscious of the timing. Their brother had passed away and had been dead four days. And I believe even back then they felt that in four days, not only did the body begin to decompose, but the spirit had, had left the body. There was nothing left. And when Jesus got the word that he was sick, he simply said, this sickness is not fatal. Say that with me. This sickness is not fatal. It's hard to wait for God to do what God's going to do.
we give up on God way too quick. We start saying to ourselves, this thing's not getting better. He's not waking up. This is how much more fatal can it be than he's dead for four days? Even Martha was saying, don't move the stone back because I don't want my brother to be seen like that anymore. I'd rather remember him like he was. They just couldn't get that. This is not fatal. This is not final. But in due time, I'll glorify my son. I've done it once, he said, and I'll do it again. It's a timing issue. It's not fatal. It was a chance for God to show His glory and His majesty. It's about God's glory, not our comfort. Say that with me. It's about God's glory, not our comfort. Jesus appeared insensitive because he stayed longer for two more days. Hmm. Rabbi, you can't do that. If you go back there, they're going to kill you. And you're going back, aren't you? Mm. If he's asleep, he'll get up. The Lord sometimes pushes the limit until we don't even see the possibility of it. We just have to remember what he said to us. This is not fatal. This is not final. Finally, Jesus, because they wanted to hear he wasn't asleep, but he was dead. Jesus said, uh, he is dead. He, Lazarus has died. And I am, free, I am glad for your sake that I wasn't there. Because you're about to be given new grounds to adjust your belief system. God was fixing to take their doctrine and make it a reality. He was stretching their belief system. The disciples, Mary, Martha, he was pulling them. And then there's Thomas, the twin. Well, if he's going back and he's going to get killed, we might as well just all go with him. He said to his followers, we might as well all die. Let's just load up and follow him because he's our hope. And if they're going to kill him, we might as well go out with him. And when they arrived at at Bethany, Martha heard he was coming and she ran out to him. Boy, isn't that amazing? Who wouldn't have said it though? She ran ran out to meet him and said, Lazarus is already dead for four days, Jesus. Martha said, Master, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Talk about a load to bear. Not only does it look fatal and over to us, not only is he not waking up.
If you had been here, he would not have passed away. And Martha replied, I know, Jesus was trying to tell her, your brother will be raised up. She said, I know he will. Martha replied to the Lord, he'll be raised up in the resurrection at the end of time. And Jesus was saying to her, you don't have to wait that long. You don't have to wait for the end. I am right now. I'm the resurrection and the power. We believe in the doctrine that His blood can wash away sins. But do you believe this morning that He can wash your sins away? We believe He's the God in the middle of conflict. But do you believe He's God in your conflict? He's stretching us this morning. All of this is total preparation for positioning the body to be ready for what's coming home. I'll probably never get to what this is all about. (laughs) Which is to remove the stone and unwrap the body and turn him loose. So I'll just go ahead and give you those ahead of time. The resurrection at the end of time. You don't have to wait. Because it doesn't matter what it looks like right now. And boy, so many things can sidetrack us from the central life purpose of what we're designed for. It's like this ain't getting better. When does this end? The whole time God's taking His sweet time to get there because He he understands it's a timing issue. How many of you know His timing's a little offset from ours most of the time? Everybody's being stretched. Now the innuendos of the load comes back to Jesus in a loving way. If you had just been here, he wouldn't have died. The same thing Mary said to Jesus when she saw him. If you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. We know that. Listen to me this morning. It is one thing to have a doctrine and another to believe it is the, that it is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, He can raise the dead, but He is the resurrection this morning. How many of you know that? Is anybody in this house ever been raised up from the grave and God has called you out? You know that His power. He said, if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Anybody got that kind of power in them this morning? You either do or you're still in the grave. If that power has raised him from the dead, it'll raise you up out of your own pit. You don't have to wait this morning. Everybody's being stretched. That's what stood out to me in this. I'm thinking, they keep forgetting. This this death is not final. This is not fatal. but is yet for the Son to be glorified. Let me back up just a minute. And then right here, after it speaks about, in verse 1, you go on down and it says, and, and then it comes to Mary. This was the same Mary who massaged the Lord's feet with oil and wiped them with her hair. 
John was reaching over into, he was coming back writing what he had witnessed a little later on. And that was Mary who had always sat at the feet of Jesus and was talking to him and being taught. And now she shows up at Simon the leper's house and she's putting the oil all over his feet and beginning to wash his feet. And then she unlocked her hair and began to wipe his hair. It was the biggest picture of self-abandonment you could have and self-humiliation. And John witnessed what happened and he said, and the smell of her, her fragrance of praise, it filled the whole room. And you know this morning, it's still prophetic what she did. And if you'll take a deep breath, you can smell it. Appropriate. Well, if she'd have saved that oil and sold it for the poor, she could have given it to the place outside of town. Jesus said, the poor you have with you always, but I'm not going to be with you always. She was prepping him for burial. And this morning, if you smell, you can see, you can smell the Savior's feet. That fragrance, when worship begins to happen in here, it begins to fill this room. It had a prophetic sense to it. Everything about this story has a prophetic sense. He's stretching all the people around him. I not only believe in his future power, I believe in the present power. What I'm saying to you this morning, no matter what your pit looks like this morning, no matter how dark it is, no matter how long you've been in it, don't give up on Jesus. He hears the cry of his people and he said, I'll send my word and I will heal you and deliver you from your pit. I'll raise you up from where you're at. Do you believe that I am that I am? For some of you this morning, however ineloquent I'm putting this, he's challenging you. Do you believe God can get you out of your pit? Do you believe this will come to an end? Do you believe this is not fatal or final? God's in it. And to you who are in your pit this morning, do you believe that His blood is still powerful not only to wash away the sins of the world, but to wash away your own sins? The Jews were there and they were all gathered together. And they said, look, look, if He loved Him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? You ever heard anybody in church sound like that? <laughs> it's your fault. You didn't do enough. What are we paying you for? If you'd have been doing your job, this wouldn't have happened on your watch. <laughs> really? If he loved him so much, why didn't he keep him? Why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? I mean, after all, he opened the blind man's eyes. <laughs> if he can open the blind man's eyes, he sure could have got here early enough to, raise, to save Lazarus, his friend. Others would say, look at him, how he weeps over him. Almost like a mockery. 
Bethesda this morning, my encouragement to you is never give up on Jesus. This is not fatal. This is not over. It may stink to you and the odor may come off of it. But it's not going, you say, it's not going to get better. It, it's not working. He's not waking up. We might as well lay down and just die beside it. No hope of it getting better. Bethesda, don't give up on Jesus. I didn't say give up on Bethesda. You shouldn't do that either, but don't give up on Jesus. He may be stretching you and your belief system. Maybe he's drawing it out a little longer and you're praying for months for it to come to an end. This whole chapter should shake, shake the whole church back to the place to say, God is enough. I've cried to the Lord and He's heard me. And He will deliver me from all of my troubles. And He'll take me to a new place of hope and perspective. We dare not detach our doctrine and what we believe from the embodied person of the living Christ. He is our doctrine. He is our life. He is our resurrection. It's almost sometimes, and please forgive me if I'm unloading instead of unpacking. It's almost like we don't have any expectancy anymore. We wonder why God heals people in other countries. And then we come home and we wonder, how come it doesn't happen more often than here? We don't expect Him to do anything. Please hear me. I have no judgment on this. Please hear me. But we become comfortable in what we believe for the future. But it's blinded us to what God wants to do in the current. He's trying to show us, I am the resurrection. I am the life. There's not a pit I can't pull you out of. I was referencing, by the way, Steve, I owe you some money. I went back into the library. Lowly. If you're using the library, you need to give money to Lowly. That's what it's for. It's designed to help and to get the word out. I was perusing back through it, listening on the way. It's had, it had to be forever back. And I picked up on one of Des's words. He said, we don't look for signs and wonders anymore. But they're supposed to follow the believer. It pierced into my soul and I thought, Lord, where's our expectancy? We're content to believe that one day, but what about today? We know His blood is powerful and can cleanse us of our sin. But do we believe that up close and personal, that He's washed my sins away? Whether you've been in a meth pit or a heroin pit or whether you've been in a family dispute or your whole situation is a disaster, know this today. God is able to speak into your situation. 
He's not hidden. He's not trying to hide things. He's not trying to say this is going to get progressively better. If God heals you, He'll heal you for everybody to see. It was from Bethany that Jesus rode on the back of a borrowed coats. When he sent his disciples to say, tell the owner of that donkey's coat that his master has need of him. And they brought that coat in, that colt in, and he it never had a blanket on him. And they put blankets, they put their clothing on it, and he mounted that, that coat's back. And he rode into Jerusalem in his triumph march there, and as he rode into it, He rode openly on the back of a donkey for everybody to see. Nothing hidden. He was humiliated for everyone to see. He was beaten for everyone to see. He died for everyone to see. And he arose for everyone to see. And he's here currently this morning. And he's ready to bring you out of your pit. He didn't ride out in a limousine. A little Oklahoma talk here. If there had been a limousine, he wouldn't have taken it with six people walking beside it to teach him servanthood. If there had been airplanes, he would have taken coach class. Unless you got frequent flyer miles. He would have taken coach class in a drug-infested tube called an airplane and fly out of the city. He'd be the one to stand up in the plane and say, Blessed be the name of the Lord God Almighty. I've come here to tell you that He can deliver you and set you free. You don't have to protect God. He can protect Himself. The afflictions of the righteous are many, but God will deliver them out of them all. I want to tell you this much, that God is going to prep the body and position us even more through through the correction He's bringing into our life. If you feel like you're being stretched and you're in a situation you just can't see your way out of, God is positioning through correction. God's saying, in order for you to be a part of what I'm about to do, I need you to be involved in what I'm about to do. So correction is this. Please just make a mental note of this. He disciplines us or corrects us so that we can become a partaker of His holiness. If God's bringing correction into your life, He's establishing order in your life. How can you establish order outside of yourself if there's none inside of yourself? So God is... He's bringing correction into the body. None of us are exempt from that. So that we can be a partaker of His holiness. God said, I'm gonna let, I'm, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. Oh, make no mistake about it. When they come to, there's a whole lot. I'm just jumping over here. I have so much to say. When it come down to the tomb, the Lord could have removed the stone by a simple whisper and blown it apart. 
You know that. But he didn't attend to the stone. He left that to the people around him. Remove the stone that keeps the word from piercing the darkness of the pit. Church, hear me this morning. God is requiring us to participate in what he's doing and begin to remove the stone that covers the dead thing. Some of us don't want to remove the stone for fear of what we'll look like to other people. One of the stones that will have to come out is it will be religion. Once religion, that's a big thing. It makes people appear one way when they're completely something else. It puts demands on people that they can't even produce out of their own life. God says, remove the stone. Oh, I, I thought to myself, Lord, surely this is where it's going to start. You're going to speak to that stone and just obliterate it right in front of everybody. Be thou removed. He didn't even speak to it. He said to those around him, move it away. Excuse me, but I'm going to skip over the discipline. I want to go to the stones. Remove the religion. Religion demands that you be like me. God said, when I called you out of the grave, I called you by name. We're not talking about sameness here. There's, in religion, there's a spirit of sameness. It's not, there's a difference between mentorship and sameness. I'm not here to make you like me. I'm here to make you discover who you are in Him. God said, when I called you out of the pit, Lazarus, come forth. Giovanna, come forth. He calls us by name in order to release us to become what we're designed to be. The Lord said, you are what I say you are. You're created in my image. I created you in the darkness of the womb. And I called you by name there. God is positioning the body to be prepped to remove the stones out of the midst of the fellowship. If you're religious this morning, what you're doing is sitting back demanding other people look and act like you. And to be honest, sometimes religious people, there's not a whole lot that makes you want to look like them. It reeks with death. We know what we believe, but we lost sight of the expectancy that He can do it here and now in the midst of His people. Discovering who we are in Jesus. Psalms 139 will clear that up for you. I didn't say saneness, by the way. I said sameness. God forbid you'd act and look like me. I often tell the ladies at the center of my class, hold your hands upside down. I'm wonderfully, fearfully, creatively made in your image. You don't need to be what Teen Challenge says you are. You need to be what God says you are. 
second stone that have to be removed. These are things that God's dropped in my heart is prejudice. It's not like that hasn't been spoken to. Pastor Emeritus made this statement many, many long years ago. Anytime anyone views anybody outside of the grace of God, they're prejudiced. Enough said about that. Stone three that God's saying to us, remove, and that's judgment. You ever been into a place and you feel judged before you even sit down? Come on, be honest here. Nobody's picking up what I'm putting down now. That's what they say over in the hood. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Feeling judged rather than accepted. Remember that. Acceptance removes the fear of rejection. You don't have to be like me to be okay here. You don't have to jump as high as I jump and laugh like I laugh. Welcome. The fear of being known when that stone is removed and our nakedness is exposed. Are we okay there, Bethesda? Judgment. Stone four, indifference. We lose who we are in people and we discover who we are in Jesus. Don't try to find out who you are in people. What you're really doing when you seek to find out who you are in people, you're giving them permission to shape you. I have to be careful to get too far away from this. <laughs> Indifference. That coldness that, that you feel. How come nobody's there was a lady sat back bass not far back. She sat down and one of the girls introduced me to her and I said, hi, you ever been here before? No. I said, well, welcome. I watched her and then I discovered she had a love for the Lord. She was a part of a software company. I didn't know what to say to her. After it was over, I just said, you want to come to our place and eat? <laughs> Larissa said, you didn't even know her. I said, I'm not trying to involve her in the ministry. I'm just saying, you want to come over? Welcome here. We don't have any airs to put on. Number five, stone five, unreasonable expectations. Nobody's going to fail here. If you're a failure, you don't fit here. If, you're not, if you've never failed in your life, stand to your feet. I want everybody to see that. No failures, only perfectionism. Only perfect behavior. Expecting from others what we can't even produce out of our own life. God could have spoke through the stone, but he asked us to remove it. This goes back to what I said early on. God is positioning this body to be ready for what's going to transition into our hands and filter through our lives.
we need to take away the stones so the word God could speak through the stone, but he chose to wait till we removed it. Now the stone is removed and the word can pierce in. And Jesus stands back with a loud voice. He could have spoken in a quiet voice, but he, he got really strong in his voice. Lazarus, come forth. And this Godiver waggles out of the tomb. But he's laden with grave clothes. Now do you pick up what I'm laying down? He's laden with all the death wraps that have been around him for these four days. Lest I, I run out of time. Louise, call Lubies and tell them, just give us a minute. Let's keep the dead at a distance from us. Let's remove the stone, but let's don't get putrefied and, and unpurified by touching what's coming out of there. And Jesus said, unwrap him. Unwrap him. And let him go. He couldn't see. He had been brought to life and make sure you understand that I believe this. Only God can raise the dead. We can't raise the dead. Only God can raise the dead. But we can loose the dead in order to help them walk out of where they're at. He could have raised him with a silent exertion of his breath, but he didn't. And he's going he's gonna to come back again. I mean, you know that's right. He's going to come back again and with a shout and with a trumpet blast, he's going to call the dead in Christ and they'll meet him in the air. It wasn't a power issue. It was an involvement issue. In order for us to get all that we need to get out of whatever God's doing that he's privileged us to be a part of, we need to be involved in what he's doing. So God's saying, if you don't want to get your hands dirty, you're in a bad spot to be hanging around me. He come out a cadaver, wrapped from head to toe. He needed the napkin taken off of his face. He needed the, the claws that wound him all the way around. He could, he could walk out like this, but he couldn't be free to walk. Sometimes people come out of unspeakable pits. Part of our job is to remove the guilt off of them. The drugs they've been involved in this distorted their perception of who they are. They're bound with Egypt clothes. The shame they bear that they're fearful to expose to others for fear of being pushed out. We have to deal with our belief system. I met a guy on the north side. He was full of weed, smoking weed like crazy. And I was with a Baptist pastor, and the guy said to him, he said, you guess what? He said, Jesus died for you. And in a stupor, he looked through the screen door and said, oh, man, he died for everybody. <laughs> but what we're telling him is he died for you.
words spoken over people, whether by religious institutions or parents, our job is to unwrap those words and expose them to the piercing word of the living God. Thought patterns that are messed up, rejection they've experienced through people and through sometimes their own family. There was a little girl who was here for a number of years. She used to dance right over in this corner. Pastor Dez asked me about her a good ways back. Whatever happened to her, he said, I said she went home to be with the Lord. She had a lot of hair, and every time that music had started, she'd be over here in the corner just dancing away. She had the worst feet of anybody I've ever seen. The ministry in Oklahoma that found her and called us and said, could you take her in? And she made this clear to us. She has very, very bad feet because she's been walking without shoes on the street. That child come into the center. And this lady's here. I won't call her by name. But one day in a staff meeting, she went and got a bucket of water and a rag and some soap. And she brought that child in there and washed her feet. She got her stuff together. She left. She struggled a lot. She went to see her dad in jail. And her dad walked across the cell and spit through the bars in her face. Talk about unwrapping rejection. The last time my wife and I saw her, she was in John Peter Smith Hospital, and she was dying. She called me and said, I need to come home. I'm not well. She come home, and I realize now God brought her home in a place of comfort and acceptance to die, to go home to be with Him. Are people comfortable to come back into us today? Are they welcome to come back home? Because it's a place of comfort and acceptance. My wife looked, she pulled that oxygen mask off and she laughed the whole time. We was trying to talk to her and Reese kept telling her, you better put that back on. And she said, no, I, I, wanted, I just want to talk to you. And Reese leaned over to her face and said, are you afraid to die? And Linda looked at her and said, no, and starts laughing. And she danced her way all the way to heaven. I know it's getting late. I'm sorry. I'm going to read this and then I'm quitting. I promise. <laughs> no, I promise. <laughs> Talking about unwrapping, there's a whole lot I could say, but I can't. I want you to know this. One of our staff who counsels, I sat down with her when this word become powerful to me. You have to understand I'm not in those sessions where things are discussed that I'm not supposed to be in, so I never hear about them. And no one else in the house does. I said, what is it like when you're in there to unwrap people who've been called to life but inhibited through the clothes they wear that come out of the grave? This is what she said to me. I unwrapped their stinky clothes. You have to understand, she's in a, a room that is probably not much bigger than your kitchen. And she sits in that place for an hour on end. 
and then gets out and takes a power walk and shakes it off and prays and comes back and picks up the next person. Taking the clothes off. She said, I unwrap their stinky clothes. I be with that person. Unwrapping them, wash them with prayer. Tending to their wounds and applying the balm of Gilead. Confessing our sins one to another so that we may be healed. She made this statement to me. It is the deep value of another person in that place of aloneness. Validating them. Crying with them. Letting them know you're not alone in that place. I'm their support. God heals. It's a treasure to be there in that quiet place. As they offer up their pain as a sacrifice to the living God. And she said, it's a sweet aroma that goes up to him. Can you imagine when we, in a long place with a trusted person, another person, can empty our pain out to the Lord as a sacrifice of praise. She said, to whom much is given, much is required. Giving them clothing to cover their nakedness because sin destroys the trusted place. And sealing that place up. She said, it's a phenomenon. But God does it. (laughs) God does it. Not necessarily done in a one-time commitment. But she said this, I'll stay for the closing however long it takes. Bethesda, we have a lot of responsibility. And to whom much is given, much is going to be required. It's time, please hear me. It's time we jump on over ourselves here and say, Lord, give me responsibility. You may have sat in this body for years and believed what you believed. Content to leave with it. And now God's pressing us a little bit to say, I'm pulling you in to what I'm doing. Remove the stone, I'll raise the dead, but you've got to unwrap them. And then the hard part's to let them go and become like I've designed them to be. Mentorship releases people to become what God's designed them to be. Sameness closes them in. You have to be like me. Will you stand with me this morning? I know I went all over this chapter. Right after this word was given to me, I pulled up in the parking lot of Bethesda. And I never, I never listen to TV preachers and radio preachers. I mean, I just don't do it. I mean, honestly, I just don't. But I'm not saying it's good. I heard this man 
relating a story of a woman in their church. He pastors Lover's Lane United Methodist Church in Dallas. I don't know him, but I know I have a friend now. I said, could I relate that story to Bethesda Community Church? He said, I would love for you to communicate that story to them and all about this woman you want. And he sent back an email to the secretary and said, and I bless your ministry. I thought, there you go. I'm in with that guy. He's not territorial at all. He said, here's my unedited notes. Share from them. Won't take but a second. He said, have you ever seen anybody walking in dead people's clothes? This come after, you understand, after God had been talking to me about moving stones and unwrapping people. I sat in Bethesda parking lot and wept. He said, you imagine them removing the death clothes from this woman in our church and wrapped them up and shared their own garments to cover her nakedness. He said, when I saw her, she attended our church and she was in a hospital garb, the one they give you when you check in to the emergency room, but she was really wearing dead man's clothes or dead women's clothes in this case. There was a reason for her action that had gotten her there that was so out of keeping with her Christian character. She was our best Sunday school teacher with children. In fact, she had been recognized by the Texas Annual Conference for the work with children. She had three beautiful children, her oldest daughters on the conference you counsel, and her youngest had six children or had a six-year Sunday school perfect attendance pen. Everybody said she deserved one too for making sure her daughter was at church Sunday after Sunday. She was always wearing a smile and could cheer anyone, but not this day. She was desperate. And I'll make this quick. She was married to a man who had a drinking problem. Her husband had been in a car wreck from being drunk and broke his neck in, in a DWI accident, and they were experiencing financial difficulties. The pressures had gotten to be too much for her, and she did the unspeakable. She had stolen some money from a bank where she worked as a teller. It was so out of character with who she was, it was a shock to everybody in the church. She was depressed and embarrassed, hopeless, and said to me as I held her hand in the emergency room, I just want to die. What does somebody say to somebody like that? He said, I listened to her as her pain poured out and I held her hand to assure her that things would be okay. I tried to say things that were hopeful and uplifting, though she knew she was likely facing prison time in a federal prison regarding her theft for money. My question was, how can I possibly unbind her from the death clothes of guilt and shame and etc.? 
to tell you we're not the only people facing this. He said, I believe the Lord is calling the church family to help one another get rid of the dead clothes we're wearing. She said, he said this, and I'm almost through. Forgive me. I was in the courtroom that day. She was sentenced to 30 days in federal prison. He picked her up and took her to Uncle Julio's to eat and took her to the prison and walked her in. And when, and when he picked her up after she got out, he picked her up and took her to Uncle Julio's again. The courtroom that day was filled with church members. This was in Dallas County, I'm assuming. She pleaded guilty and the church had raised $17,000 to pay her restitution and hired her, hired her to work on staff. <laughs> the judge had read a letter about her, who, who she, or who she really was and the action of her church. And while he was on the bench, he raised up, he lowered his glasses and read the sentence. And then as he sentenced her to 30 days, he stepped off of the bench and addressed her for the church to overhear. The judge in Dallas County said to her, would that everyone had, who comes before me had a church like yours. You are truly blessed. And then looking to the courtroom, the judge said, he, he said, I've never seen anything like this. During 30 days, she was in, the, in prison. She really received 186 letters in 30 days from people in the body. She was covered with so much love that the inmates began to ask, what church do you go to? How I many you know that's a good thing when your name's pitched around in the jail? What church you go to? What brings you back to life? She wore prison uniform like everybody else, but not the dead man's clothes anymore. He said, I don't remember quite how I said it, but I said something when I let her off like this. Where are your dead man clothes? And he said, I thought her, I heard her say, I left them in the tomb. <laughs> God invites us this morning. I'm not going to give altar calls, so you still got hope for Luby's. Bethesda, God's inviting us to be a part of what He's doing. I believe I felt the wind, of the, a little bit of the prophetic coming off of that word at the beginning. Is that I'm positioning this body. Are you ready to pull off the Stinky clothes of other people. Ceremonially, ceremonially, they would have been considered unclean to touch a dead thing. But God says, unwrap them. Unwrap them. Get the guilt off of them. Undo the shame. Let them go. My prayer for this body and for myself 
As I tell the Lord when I went through this story, stretch my theology. Stretch my belief system. Stretch what I believed that is to come. But Lord, don't let what I believe for the future blind me from what you're trying to do right now. It's okay with me if you want to raise the dead right here in Bethesda Community Church. How many of you have been raised from the dead? Somebody has taken the time to sit with you and unwrap those things. They've loved on you. Now God's saying to whom much is given, much is required. Get ready, Bethesda. God bless you.